we are going to spend a couple of weeks with Bathsheba and David. And it's going to sound a lot like the same old story. We will give David his due next week, and I will try to be as generous to him as the Bible is. But this week, let us endeavor to give Bathsheba her say. We have no idea how Bathsheba felt about Uriah the Hittite. The Bible does not tell us, but we do know that she lamented his death. Nor can we know how Bathsheba felt about David. The details of their relationship do not probe how she felt about him following the whole sordid affair. One should always seek to understand the feelings of others, but one ought not to tell others what they should feel. And so as a 21st century, relatively privileged white man, I am very aware of what hubris it would be for me to assign feelings to a brown woman from thousands of years ago. So I will not assign feelings to Bathsheba today beyond what the Bible tells us. But I do think we've seen this story before. It's an age-old story. Power run amok at the expense of the powerless. The Midrashim of the Hebrew tradition suggests a few things that might shape how we should view this story, though. The rabbis do not impute guilt for the affair to Bathsheba. Indeed, the Midrash enriches the story to add nuance, adding that she was simply washing her hair in a bucket out of sight when David's lust shot an arrow through the bucket, splintering it and leaving her revealed to his leering gaze. No, Bathsheba is largely exonerated in the eyes of the rabbinical teachings. She, like so many, is a victim of the arrogance and greed of someone more powerful. And that truly is the same old story. It's a story about sin. Let's consider the lessons that Bathsheba might teach us, beginning with the ways our own sin affects others. So often, the church's conversation about sin is an egotistical one. We presume that we are the absolute center of God's attention for what we have done wrong. And by we, I mean you, and of course me as well. There's a reason why the closing sentences of so many funerals include the line, a sinner of God's own redeeming, as an appeal to the grace of God. We know that we are a bunch of sinners, at least we ought to, because sin is ubiquitous. And as we contemplate our own sin, truly a cheery topic for a summer Sunday, we tend to be focused on the effects to our salvation and our own lives. 
Sometimes when we contemplate our sin, we deflect. Humor is a fine smokescreen for the things we have done. I have sinned, we say, tongue firmly in cheek. Or we glibly allow phrases like living in sin to tumble out of our lips without a thought to the deeper meaning of such words. If we are directly challenged on our sins, we might turn instead to righteous indignation, as good a smokescreen, I might add, and frankly, possibly a little bit more enjoyable as well. Who doesn't get a charge out of working up a good head of steam from time to time? Here's what that looks like. Well, I may have done X, Y, or Z, but don't you blame me for S, Q, and R. That shouldn't come as a surprise. Who among us wants to dwell on our worst moments? But when we can no longer avoid coming face to face with our human limitations, there is one more danger, and it's one that a committed Christian cannot take seriously enough. That is the danger that in claiming our sin, in taking ownership of our guilt, we instead hijack the narrative of grace to suit our own purposes. What do I mean by this? I mean self-justification. I may have sinned, but here's why. Consider the mitigating circumstances, O Lord. No, no, no. That's not how sin and grace work. It's probably the most original of sin that our egotistical nature causes us to focus on the means of grace for ourselves while we contemplate the nature of our own wrongdoing. How about a biblical example of what I mean by this? Against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Now, tradition teaches us that this psalm is King David's prayer of contrition following the debacle that his lust provoked. It is a powerful expression of remorse, one to which we return every Ash Wednesday as we begin the discipline of considering our own sin for the season of Lent. And it is a good starting point. It is a liturgically rich way to come face to face with the limitations of our sin. But I'm pretty sure that David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah also. Our sin has victims in addition to ourselves and in addition to our relationship with God. Sin is like ink in the water. It gets everywhere. Being honest with ourselves about the hurt that we do to others is perhaps the hardest discipline of Christian faith. Now, because God is the ultimate giver of grace, we may approach confession in certain reliance on God's love. When we confess our sin, our pardon is assured before we even open our mouths from our God who has made us and who loves us. Confessing our sin to others that we may have harmed, that may well be a great deal harder.
That confession requires us to recognize our fault without the assurance of another's forgiveness. Because forgiveness can only ever be given. It can never be demanded. The hardest confession is the one where we know what we have done wrong and we know to whom we have done that wrong and we are not assured of their forgiveness. But the ability to engage in such confession, to undertake such honesty and contrition is the mark of mature Christian discipleship an indication that we have moved beyond spiritual milk, as the Apostle Paul says, to a faith that is one of more substance. If we can hear a word from Bathsheba for today, perhaps it is a word on behalf of anyone we have wronged. The fact of sin is unavoidable, and the simplest truth is that we sin in our best deeds as well as our worst. To live with that depth of honesty with self and with others, and above all with God, is to develop something into the fullness of what God redeemed humanity in order for us to experience. Now sometimes that happens dramatically, almost as though a switch has been thrown and a recognition of what we thought or did was wrong comes to us almost as a thunderbolt out of the blue. Perhaps you've heard the story of Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a black blues musician who has made it his mission in life to help members of the Ku Klux Klan release themselves from their own hatred through the act of friendship. Over 30 years, he has befriended over 200 Klansmen and helped them to give up their robes, many giving their hoods to him in gratitude. He says, if you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about anything. You will find that you both have something in common. As you build upon those commonalities, you're forming a relationship. And as you build upon that relationship, you're forming a friendship. That's what would happen. And he concludes, I didn't convert anybody. They saw the light and converted themselves. When we learn better, we have to do better. So often, though, the awareness of our sin, the awareness of the need to make restitution for what we have done comes to us far more gradually and less dramatically. And we shouldn't assume that that form of spiritual maturity will just happen for us. We need to work toward it. I love the way the letter to the Ephesians puts it in our epistle lesson for today when it writes of strengthening our inner being. And like strengthening our bodies, it comes with practice and exercise. 
And if I could offer a prayer for our church as we grapple with the enduring effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and all that it has meant for our common life together, it would be that we would find the means to redevelop the muscle memory of faith that has perhaps been forgotten as we have been distant from one another for so long and are finally coming back together. But nonetheless, that muscle memory of the things we do in community that is absolutely vital to our health, both as individuals and as a congregation. <clears throat> By that I mean that whether here in the sanctuary in person or virtually through our online services, we must find that depth of community that enables our truest Christian selves to be the ones who look critically at our own lives so that we in can in truth confess our sin and indeed confess our faith. But as I said so often, the awareness of our sin, the awareness of the need to make restitution for what we have done comes more gradually, less dramatically than when clansmen hand over their hoods. More often, it is a gradual awakening. When that happens, it is sometimes because we have taken deliberate steps in order to stack the deck in favor of our coming to that awareness, to that self-knowledge. And we do that, dear friends, through faith practice. The practices of faith are well known to us. We practice faith by disciplining our worship, either by making it a point of coming here on Sunday mornings at 9 or at 11, or by cultivating the habit of worship online and following it up with intentional personal interaction with fellow members of the congregation by picking up the phone and calling someone and being part of community together with one another. We practice our faith by praying with intentionality for our community by name and by affliction and sorrow and in joy, which is why in every one of our session meetings we pause in the middle to pray for the congregation. We practice faith by giving. Yes, our tithes and our offerings, but also our time. We practice faith by being honest. And do you want to know the secret of faith practices as a means of cultivating the ability to live with depth? It's that it's a million mundane things that make it happen. Repetition of the acts of faith are what make it stick. That is what gives us the muscle memory of Christian discipleship. As one of the reasons why we repeat things in worship a good bit, I, I, I know some of you former Episcopalians love it when we do that. Don't deny it. You know who you are. I know who you are. I, and I also know that some of us like a little more variety on the creeds because, yes, I can see if you're muttering along, but what I can also see is when a five-year-old is murmuring familiar words, and they are becoming profoundly a part of her formation, part of her faith development. That's why we, why we repeat things in worship, so that we can develop that muscle memory 
But we also get to see it when a little boy, more exuberantly than anyone else around him, exclaims, In Jesus Christ we are forgiven! After our liturgist says, Believe the good news of the gospel. That's when we're strengthening something that will endure. Because I will tell you, there is perhaps nothing more humbling for a minister to do than to take communion to someone who has all but lost the ability to communicate. And in that moment, when I'm reciting the words of institution over the bread and, and the juice in a, in a, a, a assisted living facility room far, far from this very sanctuary, and we get to the Lord's Prayer, and in that moment, she joins in. Her eyes light up. And she is once again a part of the worshiping community because she has spent a lifetime strengthening her inner being. And when nothing else seems to work, the muscle memory picks up and the words of faith come out. All of these repetitions are ways of strengthening our inner being. Because when we need the words of the 23rd Psalm, we don't need to be fumbling around our house seeing if we can still find that Bible we got at confirmation. They need to be in our inner being. I've heard this year that one of the acts of faith that you've missed the most, the one that has fully, that most fully strengthens many of us, has been that of singing the faith together. Hymns become part of our inner being, too, and they strengthen us. They have the capacity to convict us of our sin, but also to lift us of places of great joy, but they also have the capacity to bind us to one another. My colleague Dave Davis tells the story of officiating a funeral for a dignitary who had a great fondness for Fanny Crosby hymns. And when the congregation rose to sing, he could spot the members of his congregation mixed into the assembled body of the funeral goers because they were the ones who were singing with great gusto, claiming the promises that the hymns proclaimed on behalf of their fellow member who had died. And Dave said, that's how I knew who got what we were doing that day. That's the goal, isn't it? For us to get it. To understand our, in our innermost selves who God wants us to be. So if there is a word from the Lord to speak to the unavoidable fact that our actions have consequences to others, it is to point us to the reality that God is working to redeem our best moments as well as our worst. And to the extent that we can participate in our own recovery, to the extent that we can lay aside the ego that stands between ourselves and the ability to see God's redemptive power, to the extent that that happens, our prayers unfold more naturally our giving becomes more joyful. The forgiving words of worship resonate more deeply in our being. And when that happens, personal responsibility 
acknowledges the need for restoration. Grace transforms. Words heal. Restoration brings shalom. And the same old story becomes new again as the ending is rewritten.